prepared to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show for Friday, April the 21st in 2023. We're going to be talking about a couple different items today. I want to talk about this recent situation with Alex Baldwin, or Alec Baldwin. What does he go by? Alec? Yeah. Even though his name is Alexander, apparently. Uh, Alec Baldwin, he just had all the charges dropped on his shooting situation from the movie Rust, which was being filmed in New Mexico. I want to talk a little bit about that and, uh, and a piece about firearm safety. And then I want to dig a lot more into some of these stories about civil asset forfeiture. There was uh, our recent guest on Monday who talked about how that was what disend, you know, upended her family and took all of their their savings, put their bank accounts at risk. I want to talk about what it is, why it's a problem, who's against it. I don't really know anyone who's for it right now. I guess if you're a Fed, then it's a good tool for you, but uh, it's really dangerous in a lot of ways. So we're going to talk about that. Um, first, we're going to talk about Patriot Coolers. Patriot Cooler is going to do another month with us on the show. We're really uh, happy to have them as a sponsor. If you're interested in getting a hot or cold tumbler, you should check them out. I really like their designs. I actually got both of them downstairs getting washed right now. Um, I've got one of their soft backpack coolers, which is one of my favorites when we're doing trips with the kids, keeps things nice and cool, and you're able to move around with them. Look, these are uh, excellent products, but they're basically made in the same factory with a little bit nicer design. I think the, the feel of them in the hand is quite nice, uh, but they're essentially made in the same factories. You'd see anything else made. A lot of our stuff is made overseas right now. There's nothing you can do about it. This is an American company though. So the profits come back here. And uh, most importantly, they also support our show and they support American veterans. They uh, give a donation and a portion of all proceeds to veterans who have disabilities post nine 11 to help make their homes more accessible. You can go to Patriot coolers.com you'll see i'm following them on social media pretty easy to do you can use my promo code which is just kyle k-y-l-e use promo code kyle you'll get 10 percent off if you spend 50 bucks or more which is pretty easy it's like uh two or three tumbler tumblers you're good to go or if you get one of the coolers you're you're automatically going to be squared away for free shipping over 50 bucks so go ahead and check them out again patriotcoolers.com promo code kyle for 10 percent off free shipping over 50 bucks um let's get into this story here. So I'm going to bring it up on the screen. Alec Baldwin, uh, he looks better than he did when he was out shooting this thing. So he's shooting a movie called Rust, which is a Western, I guess, that's set off there. And uh, he was charged with involuntary manslaughter. Okay. And let's just read a little bit. They decided to drop the charges. So this one is being short reported by the New York Times, uh, written, in fact, by Graham Bowley and Julia Jacobs. We'll give credit where it's due. It says New Mexico prosecutors are dropping the involuntary manslaughter charges, which were filed against Alec Baldwin for the 2021 shooting death of cinematographer on his film, Rust. And uh, so we're going to keep moving down through here. It's a dramatic reversal. So there was a lot of politics that got played in this uh, particular case. It says that uh, one of the charges carried a five-year prison. Then it was downgraded, stemmed from the law not being in effect at the time of the shooting. I guess they changed their laws. There was a district attorney who uh, jumped up in, in charge of the case. They had a special prosecutor who was nominated who had to step back down. The prosecutor actually was a, a local um, state official, so she wasn't able to act in that realm. It's been kind of a mess. They got the FBI involved to do some lab work. The whole thing has been kind of chaotic. So it says the decision to drop the charges against Mr. Baldwin came after the new prosecutors reviewed 
New evidence that showed the gun he was practicing with had been modified before it was delivered to the set, according to officials close to the investigation, who was granted anonymity to discuss the case. And that undercut the prosecution's original argument that the gun could not have fired unless Mr. Baldwin pulled the trigger. Uh, that seems very unlikely. We're going to go through why that is. All right. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about firearm safety, too, because I think it's one of those things that's important. People who looked into this probably don't have a lot of experience. I'm guessing that the prosecutors here are probably not gun experts. And if they're saying that the gun had to be modified, the odds of them understanding what they're talking about is probably pretty low. Um, it is one of these sort of silly situations where let's just get into the statute. Maybe we'll read the statute and we can decide whether or not um, any of this stuff makes sense to drop. The the 2019 New Mexico state statutes, this is going to be chapter 30 under criminal offenses. This is article two, which is the homicide section and uh, section three, which is manslaughter. So it is uh, stated as 30-2-3. I just pulled this stuff up. You can find this stuff on uh, Justia, uh, which is a, just a law website. It tells us that there's a couple different conditions for manslaughter and manslaughter by de definition is the unlawful killing of a human being without malice. So that's really important. This was no, there's no malice in this particular case. Obviously we understand that it was an accident. Uh, part one is voluntary manslaughter. That means you did it with a sudden quarrel or heat of passion. There's some other pieces to it. That's a third degree felony. Involuntary manslaughter. I'm going to just read the statute directly the way it's written. Involuntary manslaughter consists of manslaughter committed in the commission of an unlawful act, not amounting to a felony. Well, that's not what this was because this wasn't an unlawful act as it stands or in the commission of a lawful act, which might produce death in an unlawful manner or without due caution or circumspection. Whoever commits involuntary manslaughter is guilty of a fourth degree felony. Um, there's other things on there for uh, vehicle homicide and things like that. So when we're talking about this, we should be talking about involuntary manslaughter, which is going to be section B of this law. And it's the second clause, which is to say a lawful act, which may produce death in an unlawful manner, because this was an un, uh, un, intentional discharge of the firearm. So let's talk about the firearms. He was using a revolver and was doing a Western movie. I'm going to kind of walk you through what those look like. Um, we're going to start with a Glock 45. This is a standard, this is a standard law enforcement type weapon and people use Glock 19s, Glock 17s. This is essentially a modification. It's a combination of both of them. This one's a little bit uh, juiced up, but no big deal. So it's a clear and safe weapon. What I want people to understand is, oh, there's my there's my digital watermark. What do you think of that? If you're watching on the Rumble channel, you can see that the badge is digital. Um, this is a weapon that's empty and it's safe. There's nothing in there. But what I want you to understand is that when you go and pull the trigger the first time, it pulls, okay? But if you were to um, do something, you'd have to actually cycle the slide in order to get the trigger to activate. That's the only way that's going to work, okay? So striker fired, not what we were talking about. Worth noting, pretty easy. These are ubiquitous. They are all over the place in law enforcement. Um, the second thing I was going to bring on is a semi-automatic. This is going to be a, uh, a 1911 pattern weapon. Okay. A lot of people have seen these. These are popular in movies as well. The way that this has to work and we can lower the hammer. If you put a magazine in this gun and you work the slide, then it's going to pull the hammer back. And so what it does then is what's called single action, which is to say that the action of the trigger will actually activate the hammer and that will allow it to go down. Okay. Uh, there's a safety on here, which you can use. They use these in movies, even Westerns like Bruce Willis was in one that was called, um, last man standing. And he used in 1911. This is an old gun. The pattern goes back to 1908 and this uh, was adopted by the military in 1911. So if you pull the trigger on this, it drops the hammer. Okay. 
a second is not going to do anything. And if you were to have the, the hammer um, or have the trigger pulled as you rack the slide, it would still stay back. It doesn't activate until you release it. So that's not going to do anything in a situation we're talking about. Okay. I've got a, I've got a revolver. This is a 686. This is a Smith and Wesson. It's a really nice revolver. Um, this is used to be what people carried on the highway patrol, things like that. Now this is a double and single action gun. And this is where it's going to start getting closer to what we're talking about with the Baldwin situation, uh, in a double and single action gun, you have two ways of activating this. You can do what's called double action. That's when you pull the trigger, you'll notice the hammer is going to be all the way uh, down and flat. There is a firing pin on the end of this hammer. And as you pull it, you'll see, it'll actually cock the, uh, the hammer back. It's going to turn the cylinder. Okay. This thing has uh, these safety, you can't see it here, but it's got some safety, uh, snap clips in there. So these things are just to keep the, the hammer safe. There's nothing uh, in the weapon and I would keep these unloaded. This is, uh, essentially what's going to happen. You're going to pull it back and do this. So the only way this gun fires is if you pull the trigger and now we can pull it back here like this. And if you were to go and, uh, cock back the hammer, pull the trigger. Now it's in single action mode. So you're only going to do one action with the trigger instead of cocking it back and sending it forward. It's going to release it. Boom. Now, if we were to hold this trigger down and send it, you could fire around, but you're only going to fire the one because it's not going to turn the cylinder. Okay. So if there was a dead cylinder that you were on or an empty cylinder, it's not going to fire. That's worth noting because now we're going to get to the last thing. Um, I'm from Texas. As many of you know, I grew up here and, uh, I got this a long time ago, but this is one of my favorite rigs. This is kind of a cowboy action rig. This is what's called a single action army style weapon. And this is an older revolver from the seventies. It's called the Virginia Dragoon. This is a very, very large 44 mag, and we're going to clear it and make it safe. So you can see right here, it's empty. We're going to give this thing half cocked. So now it's half cocked. We can spin and you can see all the cylinders are empty. Okay. I want you to know that now here's what our boy was carrying. This is what Alec had a weapon that was that functioned like this. This is what's known as single action only. And when you have a single action only, the only way that it can fire, so we can actually put the hammer down. If you pull the hammer here, nothing happens. It doesn't matter if you pull the trigger the hammer is flat. If you go to half cocked, this one actually has a built in safety that if it's half cocked, it won't go anywhere either. And you'll notice there's no firing pin on this particular hammer. The reason is because the firing pin is built in here. The hammer has to strike it. Okay. That's just the way this one is designed. The only way this gun fires is if you were to take it all the way back and then pull the trigger, like you'd expect any firearm to operate. But the problem is if you're a fool and you don't carry a weapon properly and you do something like what I'm assuming Alec Baldwin has on video, because they were filming this is that when you pull the hammer back, this is going to go turn it and go, it's going to actually send the, a new round because it's going to change the chamber. It's going to rotate that cylinder around and then it's going to fire in. So if he was messing around with this, it doesn't matter if he pulled the trigger, if he was pulling the trigger, which so many people do when they're in Hollywood and they don't know anything about guns, they can actually fire this thing off without doing any manual trigger pull because they were already pulling it or pinning the trigger as we would call it. I'm fairly confident that's what happened in this situation. This is a real dangerous scenario when you start playing with real guns. And if you play with real guns on a movie set, there's some real rules that should come into play. I went ahead and looked them up because I thought it was worth noting. There are safety requirements that are supposed to be followed because we had this discussion uh, tonight on uh, on a Twitter space or the night before rather. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this in the late morning hours. But uh, one of the discussions that came up was 
are there any standard rules that have to apply to movie sets when it comes to firearms? And the answer is, is that it's basically state to state. There are some state laws that come into it, but generally speaking, they default to sort of the SAG or the Screen Actors Guild requirements. So let's pull those up. So here they are. This is on page six of seven, and it's under section 11, talking about firearms and other weapon. I'm just going to read it because this should tell you exactly what someone like Alec Baldwin, who's been around a very long time, should know. You are to treat all weapons as though they are loaded and or ready to use. This is basic firearm safety. This stuff should be ingrained in anybody that's on a movie set that's going to handle weapons. There's supposed to be an armorer too, who turns out was some kind of you know, color dyed haired, non-professional. But even if, if, if that's not the case, this is the standard. He's been on other movie sets. You don't play with the weapons. You never point one at anyone, including yourself. Follow the directions of the property master and or weapons handler regarding all weapons, the use of firearms and other weapons may require special permits and or op operator certificates. That's going to be state to state. California has some that they require. Um, New Mexico probably has lighter burdens. That's why a lot of people like to shoot outside of California these days. It says anyone that will be using a weapon shall know the operating features and the safety devices. Now, in the case of a revolver, that's going to be single action. The safety devices, keep your finger off the trigger and you don't pull back the hammer. There's no reason to. Um, and then if they're going to go do it for a scene, then they should make sure that the weapon is safe the way you would normally do with any weapon. That's just basic weapon handling. This is what the NRA actually used to do. They used to teach people this stuff. It says all weapons must undergo a thorough safety inspection, testing, and cleaning on a daily basis by qualified personnel. Anyone handling a weapon shall receive proper training and know the operating features and safety devices. And if uh, weapons are used in the filming, then the property master must meet with the cast and the crew, inform them of the safety precautions in effect and answer any questions. So this should be very, very old hat to someone like Alec Baldwin, who's been around a long time even a modification to that weapon, either the weapon works or it doesn't. If it goes through a basic function check and we know that it worked because it actually was able to fire, it's not going to just fall, uh, you know, fall off. They can, you know, they could probably do some modifications internally to make the trigger have a lighter pull, but one way or another, it doesn't work. If you don't cock the hammer back, have a live round inside the chamber, it can't work. That's just the nature of the machine. They don't do things that, uh, they're not designed to do. So it's worth noting, I think that's a big problem. The fact that they decided to let this thing go, it is whatever it is. Um, there's a pretty pretty horrific video. Um, I'm going to see if I can pull the sucker up. You can see this right here. This is uh, Alec Baldwin on the set. He looks pretty haggard doing this thing, but uh, they've dropped the charges. We'll throw it on real quick. I'm not sure if there's any audio to it. Yeah, so you're seeing it's a remote scene. That's the poor woman whose life was taken doing this thing. Um, you know, you point a gun at somebody, it's really dangerous. I think the only upside to all this stuff, there's no audio. You're not missing anything here. It just says that they're pleased with the decision. These are his attorneys that say they're glad that it was dropped. Um, the only upside to any of this sort of stuff, and there's almost nothing that's, that's positive about somebody dying in this scenario is that it's hopefully the, they take the lesson learned. I'm sure he's going to end up paying a big penalty that there will be a civil penalty to this. And I'm sure it's going to be, you know, seven, eight figures kind of situation. So the family will never get this, this woman back, but, um, Maybe they will figure out that they can't just run around and, and have poor firearms handling in Hollywood. They love to celebrate this thing. At the same time, they want to advertise how we shouldn't have guns and they want to take people's weapons away because they're professionals and they're conveying a storyline to make fun of. I actually had a Hollywood guy tell me that the reason they use guns is to make fun of people who use guns. It's like, no, the reason you gun use guns is because you want to glorify them because they're interesting and a lot of men are interested in them and some women as well. I know there's plenty of women in our audience here who have firearms training and experience and want to use them to defend themselves. And that's great. 
But uh, that's that's why they show them is because there's an American interest in this particular product. And as you can tell, I have a few of them. That was a that's a very small smattering of things. I just wanted to give you a taste of all the different safety type options and why there is a, a reason why a lot of people are not as comfortable with that single action only revolver. It's one of the less safe designs. There's a reason why we've moved beyond it with some of the other safety mechanisms that exist. So that is what it is. Alec Baldwin off the hook, um, kind of wild, kind of wild to think that uh, when you have that kind of money, um, you can get out of sort of having to deal with the criminal charges of it. I'm sure the civil will still be bad, but uh, the armorer, the woman, like I said, she was a pink haired uh, or blue haired, uh, you know, young woman who didn't seem to have any particular proficiency with firearms. I have absolutely no idea how they came to pay her. It's not apparently a very highly paid job to be an armorer on a set. Uh, from what I was just looking at, it said you can make between 30 and $60,000 a year doing that. That's that's pretty pitiful money for actors and, and in the film business where people can spend literally thousands of dollars a day renting equipment. And so, you know, not a highly paid job. I don't know if they're trying to give her a break in the action. It sounded like her dad was someone that has been doing a bunch of movies that are famous, but uh, you know, bad choice, major, major safety issue. So we'll probably see a lot higher insurance premiums and also some higher safety standards. And uh, as that's, as it sort of plays out and, and happens to be the case at this moment. I'm in the middle of working on a project with some folks who you'll hear about in a little while when it comes out. But uh, we were discussing a, uh, a scene that's going to have some weapons in it. And the discussion was how to make it safe, how to keep insurance costs down, and how you can avoid using real actual weapons when you don't need to because there's no upside to having real weapons on a movie set. Um, real weapons belong as very serious tools like they do. Uh, in the hands of people that know what they're doing. And if they're actors and they don't understand weaponry, then give them a replica. There's no loss there. And uh, people are not, other than people who know, people like me and my buddies who are gun nerds, there's not going to be a lot of people that are going to be crying about the fact that you use a replica that symbolizes a real gun when uh, the replica is going to do just fine and it's obviously much safer. So I'm going to pivot over to Revolver News. And we're going to read a story real quick here. This is uh, this was just put out on the fifteenth on tax day. It's uh, it's about the FBI. There's an FBI agent wearing sunglasses, and he's got a special agent badge that's obviously highly stylized. And they're saying it is about to become harder for the lawless FBI agents to seize innocent Americans' life savings. And if you are a fan of the show, then you have listened to Amy Nelson's story. You understand that she had her money all taken through a process called civil forfeiture or civil asset forfeiture. And we're going to dig into that. And how does it work? And go kind of long form and some of the cases that have been made up, some of the sort of controversies that have happened since Amy's case. Um, they are not related to her case, but they are just another example of how this thing can be misused and why it's really dangerous. Um, we're going to discuss the Fourth and the Fifth Amendment implications of this thing. So I'll just start off and I'll read some of the ad here. It just says there's countless Americans across the nation who are victims of unfair lawlessness and seizure of their private property, compliments of a disgraced FBI. We obviously agree with that here. And this is happening a lot more often than you may realize. So what is the FBI up to? Well, there was a public incident in Beverly Hills in 2021. Some of you may be familiar with that story. And essentially what happened is, we're going to quote the LA Times here because they went on to it, but the FBI went into a private company that managed um, safety deposit boxes. So it wasn't a bank. 
which is one of the misnomers I've read in some of the stories. Some of the coverage has been a little bit light on this, but essentially they went into this private business that ran safety deposit boxes and they seized them. Uh, they were allowed by the federal judge to go in and grab only a few things, and they ended up grabbing a whole bunch more. So it says the FBI is now trying to confiscate $86 million in cash and millions of dollars more in jewelry and other valuables that agents found in 369 boxes. The prosecutors claim the forfeiture is justified because the unnamed box holders were engaged in criminal activity. They have disclosed no evidence to support this allegation. This should trouble you immensely. This should be something that you have a serious, serious problem with. There is no allegation that they've engaged in criminal activity other than there is, in fact, money. The money is the evidence that it would obviously have to come from ill-gotten gains just by its existence. It's a big deal. Uh, box holders and their lawyers have denounced the ploy as a brazen abuse of forfeiture laws, saying, uh, saying prosecutors in the FBI were trampling on the rights of the people who thought that they'd found a safe place to stash their confidential documents, heirlooms, gold, rare coins, and cash. And many people do choose to do these things. Now, once again, this wasn't a bank, so there's some slightly different rules on there, but I don't really understand how they decided to get away with this. And I think from what I've understood, the judge doesn't agree with the way this was exercised, but now it's in the hands of the FBI. And uh, they are unlikely to give it up. It says, if the FBI wanted to search the boxes, the lawyers say they first needed to meet the standard for a court-issued warrant, probable cause that the evidence of specific crimes would be solved, or would be found, rather. The government, quote, can't take stuff without uh, evidence in the hopes that you're going to get evidence about it later. This is one of the attorneys who represents a box owner who's suing the government. The Fourth Amendment and forfeiture laws require the opposite, that you have to have evidence first, and then you can take property. Let's pivot over here. I want to read the text of the Fourth Amendment. I think it's really important that people understand that when when people swear their allegiance to the Constitution, most of the articles are how the, the Constitution is going to be implemented. The authorities that exist under each one of these, um, you know, the branches of government, whether the executive, the legislature, or the judiciary, but um, the things that we often think about that people say they're not going to violate their oath to the Constitution has to do with the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, and then subsequent case law, okay? So everyone knows the first amendments, your freedom of speech, your freedom of assembly, your freedom of the press, and so on, your freedom of religion. Second is the, the gun situation. Uh, my buddy Steve Friend has done a very interesting analysis on the third amendment and the quartering requirements. The federal government cannot come in and put soldiers and make you take care of them, but um, the Fourth Amendment is one of those ones that is massively important for protecting us from abuses of law enforcement specifically. So the Fourth Amendment, it's very simple. It's worth reading. You should have this thing where you understand the different parts of it, but it says the, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Okay, your personage, that's like whatever's on you as you walk around your house, your papers. This is going to be any of your business documents or any other documents you may have and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. So that's part one. Unreasonable is the reasonable standard is what they get into. And then no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause. So this is where this comes from. The concept of probable cause says there will be no warrant issued, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So when you write a search warrant, you have to have an affidavit. That's usually the statement of probable cause. 
that is going to delineate what you believe the crime is that has happened and who you believe was involved in it or where you believe the evidence of that thing is. And then you have to accurately describe uh, these things that you're going to go in and search and seize. Uh, it can be broader electronic devices to include the following, but not exclusive to. You can get you know categories of things, but you can't say that you're just going to go in and seize anything that you find in this particular area. That's not how, how warrants work. That's not how the amendments work on the back of them that tell you what you can and cannot take. And so that's part one. And then the second thing, and I think this is also equally uh, applicable, there's actually an Eighth Amendment part of this as well, uh, which I just saw, and we'll talk about through the uh, ACLU of all places. The ACLU doesn't like civil asset forfeiture because it takes people's stuff and that's against their civil liberties, which they used to care about for everybody. If you go to their website now, it's just covered with like abortion rights and trans stuff. But uh, this is their historical sort of uh, their playground to, to defend people. So the Fifth Amendment says no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless a presentment or indictment of a grand jury except on cases arising in land or naval forces. You gotta love that they cover that in or in the militia when in actual service uh, in time of war or public danger. So none of these things are really relevant, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense uh, to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. This is the double jeopardy part of it. So you can't be, um, you can't be called unless there is an indictment by a grand jury or a presentment, which is going to be, in our case, we use a complaint in the federal system. You cannot have uh, the same offense put in front of you twice. That's going to put you in jeopardy of life or limb. So that's your double jeopardy. And then, nor shall uh, be compelled in any criminal case to be witness against himself. Okay, so this is the, the one where people plead the fifth. What they're saying is they don't want to be a witness against themselves, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So that's the due process clause, uh, which is to say that there must be due process, and that's obviously defined through, through some statute, but also um, through practice in English common law. You cannot be taken life, liberty, or property. Those are the three things that the Constitution was meant to protect. It's the three things in the Declaration. We talk about life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Uh, this is sort of the Lockean idea that there were three things that people would need, life, liberty, and then property, so which they could maintain life and, uh, and you know sustain liberty. In any case, uh, you can't take those without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Okay. So they can't just come in and grab your stuff. There has to be a crime. And the way that civil asset forfeiture works is very, very uh, frustrating for most people. I'm going to pivot over here to the ACLU's website because I think it's worth noting people that I don't agree with everything about when they're on the same team as me and the same team as what most Americans are going to be able to get behind, then this is where they're at. Apparently, 86% of Americans do not agree with the use of civil asset forfeiture or asset forfeiture uh, laws in this country. And unfortunately, the police are perversely incentivized to use them because it allows them to do a lot of things like um, they can buy new stuff. They can keep the uh, equipment, the spoils of these things. It, when I was a kid, I remember there was a, um, a D.A.R.E. program and I went to a public school in, uh, in Coppell, Texas, which is outside of Dallas, and they had a Camaro. It was one of the new sleek, high-speed Camaros, and it had this full wrap, you know, and it was done up like a police car. And they got that from some civil asset forfeiture where they'd gone after a drug dealer and they'd been able to, you know, appropriate that thing for law enforcement use. So then they had this flashy dare car, but they also had, you know, kind of a thing for chases and they got it all set up for all those kind of things. And we used to see that fairly frequently. Sometimes they would do it in, 
and the state police, they would have access to some of these things. And it would be kind of an interesting kind of uh, a warning to drug dealers. Like, hey, we'll take your stuff and we'll make it part of the cop stuff. So there's something to that that people didn't hate. But uh, my buddy Steve Friend said something that I thought was very insightful. And so I'm going to pass it along to you. On the first glance, you think the civil asset forfeiture allows the government to take the ill-gotten gains of criminal activity, like a drug dealer, and put it into effect for the good of the people, like the police. But where did that money really come from? Because the drug dealer didn't have money that just grew on a tree. The drug dealer got money from drug addicts and customers. So essentially, we took the money from drug addicts and we played that directly into the civil asset forfeiture. And we don't even have to convict the drug dealer of the crime. We don't even know if they're a drug dealer. You don't have to even prove that they are. You could file against the, uh, the actual physical assets like cars or bank accounts and so on and take those, and you never even have to indict or prove anything. So you're doing an end around, I would say, the Fifth and the Fourth Amendment. And in the case of the ACLU and some of the Supreme Court decisions, what they've also said was that it was a violation of the Eighth Amendment, which is that of, about cruel and unusual punishment. And they talk about excessive fines and fees because by taking people's stuff without accusing them of a crime, they said that basically it was subject to a review under that. And that, there's an ongoing Supreme Court case, it sounds like. It's been remanded, I think, to, uh, to the Supreme Court of Indiana. I'll have to keep checking on this thing because I want to make sure we find out at the end of it. But essentially, the Supreme Court said that the Eighth Amendment actually does come into play, that there is, in fact, a, um, an excess fees or charges sort of component when you take somebody's everything or take all of their stuff and that the uh, the Indiana Supreme Court can rule on that. That's maybe a year and a half, two years old at this point. So I'm not sure if it's gotten through the court yet and I'll have to do a follow-up on there. I just, I didn't see anything that was super relevant to it. I'm gonna read a little bit from this uh, ACLU website here. So we'll, we'll jump over here. Um, it says, police abuse of civil asset forfeiture laws have shaken our nation's conscience. Civil forfeiture allows police to seize and then keep or sell any property that they allege is involved in a crime. And that's really the key thing here is that they allege, but they don't necessarily have to prove it that way. Uh, owners not need not be arrested or convicted of a crime for their cash, cars, or real estate to be taken away permanently by the federal government, the state government, or the local government. Forfeiture was originally presented as a way to cripple large-scale criminal enterprises by diverting their resources. Uh, these are you know great RICO tactics. You can take away the mob's ability to to uh, run a store, you can take away their physical, you know, trucks and their, and their cars and things like that. Uh, but uh, really damaging when you use it against someone like Amy Nelson, because her husband used to work for Amazon and doesn't work there anymore. That stuff is pretty gross. And there's plenty of examples of gross, like people going in and having their bank accounts seized, because the thing in Beverly Hills, that's so crazy. Let's say that, um, let's say that in fact, one or two of those people were involved in a crime and they cracked open the safety deposit box and they found a bunch of cash. Well, who's to say where that cash came from or when it got there? And what about the other people that have cash there? What if you're just a guy who regularly goes to a casino and you want to keep your, your winnings there? I've actually met people who have seven figure, you know, keepings, uh, casino holdings winnings and, and their regular bankroll, and they keep them in safety deposit boxes that are not in banks. They're either in the casino or they're in other private areas nearby so that they can access those funds when they want. And outside of regular business hours, that may be a thing that people need to be able to do depending on what their lifestyle requires of them. And that's not a crime. 
there may be some crimes that could be involved if you weren't paying taxes on winnings and things like that. But none of those things can be alleged just by the simple existence of a box full of cash. So that's something we should be pretty concerned about. Uh, this article goes on. It says forfeiture was set up to do this thing about uh, criminal enterprises, but today it's a deeply flawed uh, because of federal and state laws. Many police departments use forfeiture to benefit their bottom lines, making seizures motivated by profit. And in this case, it's not really profit. It's actually just equipment and budget um, rather than crime fighting. And for people whose property has been seized through civil asset forfeiture, the legally um, regaining these things is notoriously difficult and expensive and sometimes the cost of it can exceed the actual value of the property. So people just give up. With the total value of property seized increasing each year, the, uh, there's a call for reform. ACLU is uh, leading a charge on that. I actually can commend that. That's pretty easy for us to be feeling good about. This is something that should happen. And uh, so we went to Reason Magazine over here, and we'll talk just a little bit further about that. So Reason Magazine does this piece. This is going back to 2019. This is talking about the Eighth Amendment that I mentioned earlier. So I want to dig into it. It says the Supreme Court delivers a unanimous victory for asset forfeiture challenge. Once again, this is now almost four years old. It is four years old. Um, it says the Eighth Amendment prohibition against excess fines and fees applies to the states as well, which is what the Supreme Court ruled. And uh, it's opening a new way to challenge outlandish forfeitures. So the, essentially what's so difficult about this stuff is that there's no allegation that a crime is committed by a person. So you're trying to prove that your money or your assets didn't do it. And you're not dealing with the government having to prove that that was the case. This is a much lower burden. I, I think it's preponderance of the evidence. Very, very difficult. Uh, when Amy Nelson came on the show and talked about it the first time, so you can go back to our earlier episode with her, the thing that she said was, it cost her 15% of her net worth to receive the other 85 back. They had to agree to a settlement where they were going to lose something, which is essentially like the government saying that this stuff wasn't actually involved in any of this stuff, and they just held onto it as a punishment. It's really, really disgusting. Uh, in this case, it says the states are bound by the Eighth Amendment, which has a prohibition against excess fines and fees. When they, seize, uh, when they seek seizing property or other assets from individuals charged and convicted or convicted of a crime, which is what the Supreme Court said. This goes back to 2019 again. The decision uh, at hand was a major victory to critics of civil asset forfeiture. It's often uh, abused and it's practice which the states and local government can seize cars, cash houses, pretty much anything that has value when they suspect that is being used to commit a crime or that is the ill-gotten gains of a crime. Uh, the Supreme Court's case was Tim's versus Indiana. So there you go. I actually remembered correctly that it was in fact the uh, Indiana Supreme Court and this was a seizure of a $42,000 Land Rover SUV from a guy named Tyson Timms, who was arrested for selling heroin to undercover police officers. So this is where it normally comes in. It's normally a drug thing. Uh, he pled guilty to the crimes. He was sent into one-year house arrest and probation. On top of that, the state seized his Land Rover, where he purchased, uh, which he had purchased with money he received from his late father's life insurance payout, not with the proceeds of drug sales. Um, on the grounds that it had been used to commit a crime. So they were alleging that it was a crime, that, that he had used criminal money for it. He says it comes from something his father uh, had died and left him money. The, the goofy thing about this is, of course, money is fungible. That means that you can bring it in, and it's the same argument against uh, Planned Parenthood when you talk about not wanting to fund abortion. You say, well, we're only giving them money to do this other thing that they do. Well, the money cannot be 
delineated on you know what exact dollars you did for each one if you added to the bottom line the bottom line is spent and they're able to do certain things because they have money that they didn't have before so you can't say that this particular amount of funding was used one way or another it's a i you know it's a difficult case if he directly took the money before he was selling drugs and bought the land rover maybe you're dealing with something different here but it's tough because this is actually as clean a case as you'd be able to have the guy actually pled guilty to the drug charges uh, it says he challenged the seizure, arguing that taking his vehicle amounted to an additional fine on top of the sentence that he was already receiving in uh, in court. And the Indiana Supreme Court rejected that argument because the Supreme Court had never explicitly stated that the Eighth Amendment applied to the states. So this is all good. And this is back when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually on the, the court. It says, for good reason. Protection against excessive fines has been a constant shield throughout our history. Excessive fines can be used an example to retaliate against or chill the speech of political enemies, so on and so forth. All right, so they've ruled that it that it plays in. Let's pull the Eighth Amendment up here too, because I think it's worth uh, reading the Eighth Amendment for people who are not familiar. It's one of those. I just I feel like we're oftentimes we are left with uh, words that uh, people are not really knowing what it is they swear to. It's not knowing. Uh, they don't understand what it is that their their oath actually requires of them. Um, let me just grab it real quick here. Eighth. Amendment. So there we go. Oh, we can't find it. That'd be good. It'd be good if we could find it. All right, there it is. So uh, the Eighth Amendment is a requirement that is often used talking about cruel and excessive punishments, right? Um, but there is obviously a application in the case of the Supreme Court dealing with fines as well. So pretty straightforward. Uh, and, I, and that's actually in the plain text, the Eighth Amendment, excessive bail shall not be required nor excessive fines imposed. So there's your second clause. And the third one, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. When I think of the Eighth Amendment, I'm often thinking of the cruel and unusual punishment part of it. Um, but excessive bail and excessive fines are also part of it. So, you know, you're talking about essentially a, a group of people that founded this country that were just coming out of the exact thing that they are writing the defenses of. And interestingly enough, our country is getting there. You think about a million dollars bail. That's essentially saying you can't get out. And then we've created this whole system. Uh, people who've never been to jail or haven't dealt with the jail system don't necessarily understand that uh, you know, you're going to basically pay a bail bondsman. Someone is going to put up that kind of cash and then you know, guarantee that you're going to appear. But you're going to have to give them 10% of that money as a payment for them putting up the risk and the rest of the money. And that's a really weird kind of business. Uh, bail bonds is a strange, strange business. And they have to work weird hours. And they have to deal with lousy clientele, unfortunately, people who go to jail. So it's just a really, it's a really odd situation to be in in this country um, when you have these things. But there's actually a prohibition against it in the Eighth Amendment, excessive bail. But excessive is going to be related to the crime. It's going to be related to your financial means. And then the excessive fines imposed piece apparently now applies to civil asset forfeiture and the Eighth Amendment applies to the states. What's odd to me is that I was fairly confident that all these things were applied to the states, but they have to individually create case law each time this stuff is done. So that's why these challenges are so important. Um, apparently, that's something that we can't all agree on up front that, hey, the entire United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights apply to all the states. 
that's not the case at the moment. So last little idea I want to talk about since we're talking about bail bonds and all these kind of things. Um, there's a story, many of you will remember there was a mass shooting that happened in uh, Louisville and obviously a tragic situation under all circumstances. But one of the things that I find very troubling is that people always want to loop it all in. It's all one thing. It's all another thing. Each of these events are very individualized. They're very specific to the person that made a decision to go do so. And so rather than looking at the victims in this country, which is, I think what we should be doing, focusing on who are the victims, how do we help them out? Um, you know, there's no one size fits all solution. This entire talk of banning uh, so-called assault weapons. President Biden put that out in a tweet very recently and gets lampooned for it. None of the people that are involved, even the guy who runs the ATF right now, who is an interesting choice under many circumstances, they have no idea how to even define these terms. They're mostly cosmetic. They are discussions that have been going back in the 90s. Uh, I just actually saw a strange piece about Waco that stated that uh, possibly the entirety of the Waco case that was being built up and, and was all based on visually observed cosmetic alterations, which were not mechanical. And uh, as you can tell, I'm, I'm a little bit of a firearms guy when it comes to the actual mechanics. That's something that I find very interesting. The mechanisms that, uh, that load, the mechanisms that fire, whether the barrel is fixed or moving, things like this. These things interest me. And so if you're gonna be somebody in that sphere and you're gonna be charging people or making laws and you don't even know what you're talking about, I think it's really dangerous. It's not a good situation for this country. So a lot of people have been uh, referring to this article. Uh, this is something that came out of the Daily Mail. And uh, I didn't know if I was going to end up covering it, but we might as well. So Daily Mail, uh, in this case, written by Greg Woodfield and uh, Caitlin Becker on DailyMail.com. Uh, obviously a foreign paper, British paper. But uh, it says exclusive, the, the motive for the massacre. Apparently the, uh, the gentleman that was involved in, uh, not gentle at all, really, but the bank shooter that went into uh, the Louisville Bank and... Uh, ended up killing a number of people, uh, including himself, by suicide by cop. His name's Connor Sturgeon. He wrote a 13-page manifesto laying out uh, his major three reasons for getting involved and going and shooting and eventually dying. And here are the kind of the highlights of it. He wanted to prove how easy it was to buy a gun, highlight America's mental health crisis, and kill himself. So a lot of these things are, are they're fodder for sort of tabloid type journalism. They're fodder for leftist talking points. In this case, we'll just read a little bit of it. It just says the 13 page missive describes his goal before the horror of the old, uh, the downtown at the old national bank, 25 year old live stream, the massacre. That was number one. Um, he put it out on Instagram. He was gun he's gunning down coworkers, you know, and he basically laid out those three points that we just talked about, about the ease of, of buying a gun in Kentucky. Uh, there, there we go. So we've got a picture of him. If you're watching on the um, on the Rumble stream, you can see it. If not, obviously you will not. Uh, but he came in with an AR-15, and uh, he bought it on April 4th, and then on the 10th he went in there and uh, started shooting people. You can see him standing there in the bank. Uh, whether he had any familiarity with that weapon system is another animal. I guess this is some of the video actually from it. I I've deliberately kind of stayed away from some of this stuff because there was no. Um, there was no redeeming message coming out of any of this. And there was no, you know, hopeful thing from law enforcement. We also have a law enforcement officer who's still fighting for his life and still in critical condition. But uh, each one of these things needs to be taken individually. They each need to be looked at as a, you know, a simple, as a simple story in and of itself and not part of a broader narrative or a broader picture, because I don't think there is a broader picture. There isn't a subset of America that would be known as the mass shooter community. In fact, I would suggest to you the fact that they are involved in something like this is in fact the actual reason why that there is no community for them. 
they're not connected to people. They're not going out and getting mental health uh, treatment. They're not going out and talking to other human beings and uh, making that connection and, and looking for help for mental health services and so on. If the only way that they can see things going is is taking a weapon and then trying to bring some sort of political cause to light as they die, that is a highly disordered position to be in. So each of these are different. And that's that guy obviously has a different situation than the uh, than the trans person, whatever their mental health status was going into the, uh, the convent church or the convent uh, school shooting that happened, which was not too far away. All these are individually unique situations going all the way back as far back. Apparently, there have been school shootings going back into the 1700s. So you look at the kids at Columbine, and they had a different situation. They had a different uh, you know, concern. They were looking for different types of uh, outcomes. All of them are disordered. All of them are not going to be the result, especially if they're dead. And uh, you know, mental health is sort of a, a catch-all, but there's so many different facets of mental health. People who want to harm others versus people who want to harm themselves, people that don't care who they harm. And as a uh, guy who worked in a, you know, a paramedic uh, psych ward who took in what we called emergency psych patients or, you know, emergency detention, uh, we'd throw them into a, not a padded room, actually, interestingly enough, the room was always just drywalled and it was always reinforced and it would have a TV that was behind glass because people would go in there and throw feces and throw clothes and um, throw pieces of the, of the bed and these kind of things, they would snap and, and then some of them would just curl up in a ball and sleep under a blanket, you know, and you'd see the whole gamut and, and none of them were the same. Like even the, the, the catch all phrase of suicidality, it's not the same thing. So anyway, it's, it's worth looking at each one of these things uniquely and not getting caught in this political narrative. If you listen to the show, you've heard, I, I, I kind of describe a lot of these stories as a, as a laser on the floor and we, the American public's attention span is like a cat that just chases it down. It's never really going to where the laser is. You know, what is it that they're trying to accomplish? They're using these sort of narratives to push either gun control or mental health, which I would not have an issue with the mental health part of it. But end of the day, it'd be very difficult, I think, to say that one thing or the other is the cause of all these things. Um, and there's obviously some some people that are interested in whether it's you know, prescriptions for SSRIs and, and taking people off. There's a lot of powerful drugs out there that we have long-term data on. And I don't know that anyone wants to discuss it because there's a lot of money in keeping people on these things. So, um, and that, and that goes a long route as, as someone who doesn't take medications on a daily basis. That's uh, something I can kind of sit in my high horse and say, you know, we, we obviously should be much more discriminating about what we put in our bodies. I hope people will. I hope this guy's story uh, eventually does come out as far as what he was involved in. Uh, the weirdest piece of the story that I read, and I didn't know they did this in Kentucky, is that they actually auctioned off the firearm to the to the public, uh, which the Daily Mail said effectively putting it back into circulation uh, as though putting a firearm in somebody's private possession is circulation. There, there's just a lot of misinformation when it comes to, and, and I think accidental failure to understand information when it comes to dealing with firearms by people who are non-firearm people. Uh, again, this goes exactly back to the type of folks that would be involved in a, a movie production, which is kind of what we saw. And when they are in that boat, then they make sort of weird assumptions. They don't understand how things work. And unfortunately they, um, they're just going to perpetuate it for other ignorant people in the same world that have the same sort of bad views or, or lack thereof. And, um, you know, hopefully you can be out there and educate yourself, things like this, whether it be your personal experience or you you'd say, hey, well, I can refer you to a place where you can go look and learn a little bit more about it because you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, that is part of the reason that we do the show. And you have been watching the Kyle Serafin Show for Friday. I hope that uh, we, you'll stick around and check us out on Monday. I've got an interesting interview coming up. We're working on the uh, details of it. I think you're going to enjoy seeing it. I've seen... Uh, the individual that we're, we're looking at talking to 
on a number of national programs, but never long form. And I think there's a lot more story there. There's only so much you can get out in the two or three minute hits. And then uh, also pass on kind of our uh, sympathies to my buddy, Dan Bongino, who was, uh, you know, parted ways with Fox in the last two days here that we were, we're seeing, see the reporting of it. Uh, I reached out to him, didn't realize that it was going to be such an emotional topic when I, when I turned on his uh, podcast. So if you didn't see uh, yesterday's podcast from Dan and the Dan Bongino show, by all means, go check that sucker out at least the first couple minutes of it. So you understand at least the man saying it in his own words, and you'll probably see a little bit more on today's, I imagine too, uh, folks. If you like what you're seeing, you can always come and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It does help bump us up. We are up to um, quite a bit. Uh, let, me, let me read one real quick here. I've got one from Scott J963. He said, learned about Kyle through his appearances on the Dan Bongino Show. Indeed. His commentary and information is unique and always worth listening to. Seems like he was born for this role instead of the FBI. Well, I appreciate that, Scott. <laughs> That's very thoughtful. Uh, we're up to 366 reviews with a five out of five rating. So that comes from you guys, the listeners. If you uh, want to put one of those up there, I will read them on the show when I see them come in. And uh, thanks to Scott J for his kind words. Uh, folks, you can find us on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeartRadio, any of these places. If you want to see the video, it's always on Rumble at rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin, rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. And that's an opportunity for you to throw some stuff in the comments. I respond to most of them. Some of you are very insightful. Some of you are just very witty and funny. In any case, I do appreciate your attention today. And we will get back to you after this weekend with an interesting interview. I will try to tease it out once we get it on, a, um, on the books. And uh, you'll have an idea what's coming once we get it in there. But I think you're going to really appreciate it. And we'll see you again on Monday. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.